purposes of civil liability, the torturer has become, like the pirate and slave trader before him, an enemy of all mankind. But we've also seen uh, challenges as uh, two food crises, the biggest financial and economic crisis since the 1930s, and the WTO has remained solid in the midst of this tempest. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the Alien Tort Statute should not afford a cause of action to address the extraterritorial conduct of a foreign corporation. 751 Europeans have been elected to directly represent citizens from 28 different nations in all their diversities, with all their differences, with all their different outlooks on lives. But you all come together here. Welcome to Nomosphone, a podcast produced by students from the Global Law Program at Tilburg University. I'm Maria, and today we'll be looking at blockchain and the law. Blockchain and cryptocurrency have become one of the most discussed topics in the past years, and especially months. There is a massive economy growing around cryptocurrencies, but they also raise a great amount of controversy, especially due to their speculative nature. The blockchain technology is continuously being integrated into numerous fields throughout the world, from e-government services to humanitarian aid. But despite this ever-growing interest in the technology, many still remain unsure of what any of these terms actually mean. First of all, it is important to differentiate between cryptocurrency and blockchain, since cryptocurrency is an application of blockchain and these terms should not be used interchangeably. Cryptocurrency is a form of digital or virtual currency powered by blockchain technology, Bitcoin being one of its most popular examples. This episode will not be about cryptocurrencies, but it will focus on its underlying technology, the blockchain. I will explore different uses of blockchain, particularly for governance, first in the context of democratic participation, and then I will take a closer look at how it can help resolve an important issue in corporate governance. I will continue by exploring the regulatory framework surrounding blockchain and addressing the wide range of issues that may arise from the use of the technology. So what is blockchain? To simply explain, it is a distributed ledger, or database, which records all transactions affected on the network, grouping them into blocks and adding them to a chain of previously recorded transactions. The network must reach consensus as to the validity of each transaction through the use of a particular protocol a mathematical algorithm. Each block contains some type of data, depending on the use of the blockchain, a hash, which is a unique code similar to a fingerprint, and the hash of the previous block. The blockchain is secured through cryptography, which makes the links between the blocks virtually unbreakable, making sure that information is not altered. Once a transaction is approved and sent, it becomes immutable. Each user of the network retains a copy of the blockchain, which is simultaneously updated. Unlike a traditional database, a blockchain is decentralized. There is no central authority and full control. These features altogether create transparency and establish trust throughout the network. 
blockchain network can be public, where it is entirely available to the masses, or private, where participants are limited and must be invited to join, hence why it is also called a permissioned blockchain. The blockchain technology is not inherently limited to transfers of digitally stored value. It can be used for any application requiring transaction verification or a trusted repository of information. And transactions can represent nearly anything, making it suitable for a wide range of industries and giving it the power to transform everyday transactions. So my name is Aaron Wright. I'm a professor at Cardozo Law School in New York. Uh, there, I direct Cardozo's blockchain project and a technology program called the Tech Startup Clinic. Uh, before joining Cardozo's faculty, I started and sold a company to uh, the for-profit sister project to Wikipedia called Sakia. Played a small role uh, through my work at Cardozo, uh, helping to start the Ethereum Foundation. I'm uh, chair of the legal industry working group of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. I'm also the co-founder of an open-source um, smart contract platform called OpenLaw. Yeah, so I think you know blockchains in many ways do to assets what the internet did to communications. Right. So before uh, the birth of the internet, if I wanted to send a communication to somebody in another country, I could write a letter. I could drop that letter in the post office, and the post office would basically route it between all the different postal services in other countries and deliver the letter. And that could take, you know, days, weeks, months, depending on where you wanted to send it. Uh, the internet really came out and all it took was you connecting to the internet to send a message, you know, nearly instantaneously anywhere across the globe. Uh, with blockchains, we really have the same the same type of chessboard being set up, but this time with assets. Uh, so you can secure on a blockchain uh, uh, ev evidence of who owns what asset at any point in time. Uh, those assets can be things like Bitcoin or Ethereum or some of the tokens that we've seen traded over the past couple of years. They could be representations of assets that exist in the real world, things like intellectual property or real property or stock certificates. And the thought is, is that that will lead to a whole host of additional uh, businesses and efficiencies, much like the first wave of the Internet, um, and hopefully make the world a little bit more efficient and hopefully um, make the world a little bit better. Right now, um, this idea of a blockchain really serving as an uh, asset management layer is probably the, the purest long-term use case. So just keeping track of who owns what assets at any point in time. And the hypothesis is, is that over the next you know, uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, more and more assets will be managed via blockchain. And then we'll use these small computer scripts or programs called smart contracts to move around and structure the transferring of those assets uh, so that, that that all can happen in a fairly efficient manner. Um, and I think that that's probably going to be one of the major use cases for it. I think the second major potential use case for blockchain technology, uh, which may emerge in, in the longer term, is uh, the widespread deployment of these crypto economic systems or systems that enable folks to define a set of rules and work together to, again, hopefully perform some socially beneficial activity. The particular use case that I want to examine is one created by blockchain's decentralized nature. With no centralized authority nor human intervention, blockchain can redesign governance and allow for greater democratic decision-making, which can be applied in many fields, such as communications, business, politics, or law. So, blockchains 
again, can store evidence of assets. They can also store evidence of other types of information, things like uh, votes, uh, things like um, uh, identity, potentially. And when you combine those three things together, you have identity, you have voting, you have assets. Well, that begins to look a lot like a traditional organization. And you can use these smart contract programs to define rules about how voting should occur, how uh, assets should be transferred, uh, about how certain uh, social activity can occur. And that can be combined um, to potentially create uh, online organizations where a whole host of people are working together towards a common purpose. And those organizations could potentially become quite large, right? We've seen big, big online communities develop over the past 10 years. Just think about Facebook. It has what about 2 billion people interacting with that service every day. Uh, so it's not outside the mind's eye to imagine blockchain technology, uh, building organizations that are potentially quite large and span across multiple jurisdictions. Uh, well, in many ways, you're creating uh, new governance mechanisms and governance mechanisms that are not implemented through uh, laws or bureaucratic rules like we often uh, organize things today. Uh, instead, you're organizing that activity through uh, code-based rules or algorithmic rules. So in, in many ways, that is algorithmic governance, right? We're, we're relying on algorithms to govern our social activity and our human activity. Uh, you know, Bitcoin is really a good example of that. Uh, so today, there's hosts of laws and rules and regulations that permit um, you know, the Federal Reserve Bank to issue and manage and maintain the U.S. economy and the U.S. dollar. Um, and that's really what, what governs that activity. Uh, with Bitcoin, there, there are no laws or rules or other bureaucratic systems that are maintaining the system. They may interact with those bureaucratic rules. Um, instead, it's all defined by code, by, gov by governance rules that are either memorialized in the underlying open source software or in the, the little bits of smart contract code, very simple smart co contract code in the case of Bitcoin that governs the transfer of those assets. I think we're increasingly seeing people from across the world getting together to interact in online uh, communities, right? Uh, jurisdictional boundaries matter a little bit less on the internet. And here with blockchain technology, there's a possibility to build organizations that are native to the internet. Uh, they're not native to a specific country. It's possible to, to rapidly spin them up over time uh, because we're, we're going to move to an era where we have uh, effectively software libraries that will enable folks to build those organizations in a matter of you know hours in, instead of days or weeks or however long it takes to build an organization today. Um, and if this proves like a useful way to coordinate, uh, to get a whole bunch of different people to get pointed in the same direction, and, um, then that, that's probably going to become something that more and more folks are, are going to use. Uh, it's going to be more efficient, and we're going to see more of them. I do think, you know, just at a high level, that more efficient systems over time tend to win out. And if the cost of coordinating uh, via blockchain is lower than the, the current cost of coordinating through traditional means, then that's probably on balance going to be uh, something that will uh, be socially beneficial. There's, there's a whole host of, um, of, of technical and also practical limitations. So uh, to, to govern large-scale organizations, uh, the technology needs to be stable. Um, it's the, the smart contract programs that are used to define the rules related to an organization's governance uh, oftentimes can't change off the bat or by default. So there's questions about how do you make those rules updatable or amendable or um, or how do you handle those types of questions? 
Uh, there's legal issues related to having folks work together online in an organization uh, and what that would mean in terms of potential legal liability. What happens if that organization or group of people working in that organization hurts someone else? Will they be personally liable, um, much like you are potentially at least in the U.S. with a partnership, or will government uh, try to create some sort of veneer of limitation of liability like we've seen for LPs or corporations? In the sphere of politics, blockchain can transform the operation of democratic institutions. The criticism against traditional political participation and the desire for autonomy and self-governance through models such as deliberative democracy has been voiced since the 80s. Globalization and the consequent need to include more actors in the process has further challenged the performance of traditional forms of government and increased the consideration of new forms of coordination between state and society. Some have found that the perceived benefits of a bottom-up approach to politics and a form of government directly managed by networks of private individuals could be achieved through the integration of modern-day technology, particularly the blockchain. For instance, blockchain can promote democracy through a transparent and efficient electoral process. By serving as a distributed and irreversible record of votes, which can be easily audited and accessed and reviewed by the voters themselves, It can facilitate the voting process by allowing people to securely vote over the internet. Indeed, a few cities around the globe have already gone forward in implementing this. Countries such as Sierra Leone and Switzerland have already trialed uses of blockchain and voting systems, and the state of West Virginia introduced blockchain voting in the U.S. November 2018 midterm elections. To illustrate how blockchain can transform democratic participation in voting, I want to look at the use of blockchain in the sphere of business law more specifically in corporate governance. So my name is Anna Lafare. I'm an assistant professor here at the Business Law Department of Tilburg Law School. I have a background in economics and a background in law, and that's also what I combine in my research. So during my research, I mainly focus on how to get shareholders involved. And what I did is to study those determinants that determine their decision whether or not to go and vote at the annual general meeting of shareholders, because that's where shareholders actually can involve in decision making. And I saw that there are some good things about the system, but I also observed that it's kind of outdated. We live nowadays in the modern world. We have many modern technologies, but those systems that actually govern the AGM, the Annual General Meeting of Shareholders, are actually very outdated. So you have on the one hand this very important corporate organ where you actually have very uh, large decisions that are formally made. And on the other hand, you have these problems in, in practice where, first of all, at least according to economic theory, not that many shareholders show up to. So especially small shareholders that have a very small stake uh, will not have a large effect on the voting outcome. Although they have to make some costs because they actually have to come to these meetings or issue their votes, be informed, meaning that those shareholders, at least from an economic perspective, will not exercise their voting rights. So there is large room for improvement here. If you lower the costs, for example, then probably more shareholders will be showing up and will be engaging in this decision making. This lowering cost aspect actually has already taken place with the first shareholder rights directive where actually electronic voting has been made possible. And you see nowadays that most shareholders, really large majority of the shareholders uses this electronic remote voting 
uh, device. However, uh, with that, there are again two difficulties. First of all, because of this remote voting, you see that the AGM as itself gets also hollowed in that way that shareholders do not show up physically anymore, meaning that the discussion is is almost uh, empty in a way. So you don't really have a discussion anymore. And the second problem, and that also is something that blockchain, we feel can blockchain can solve directly, is that um, with this remote voting information, so the votes are not always correctly transmitted from the shareholder to the issuer, to the company. Because if you nowadays hold shares with a company, for example, you buy shares in Philips, you do not buy them directly from the company. But you have to go to your bank as the intermediary, which holds an account with another intermediary. And depending on which intermediaries are in between, the final intermediary then holds an account with the company, the issuer. So there is a chain of intermediaries. So it's a solution, but also a problem. What we see with the private blockchain is that you actually have some kind of authority. So we still um, actually propose in that way a little bit of a centralized concept where you have one permissioner, as you may call it, that actually sees whether or not somebody is qualified to exercise activities, including voting, on this blockchain network. So you can, as a shareholder, you can show, okay, I have these amounts of shares, so I can actually exercise these amounts of votes. Um, and as you, you, you may know, you can, for example, if you have a certain threshold of votes or shares, you can also add shareholder proposals to the annual general meeting. So we still see room for an intermediary, a permissioner, one central authority. And if you only do that with in the company that's possible. We see that nowadays with Kasbank, that's the Dutch example of the first company that actually had its AGM on the blockchain. You see there that the issuer, so the listed company itself, is also the authority. If you look in the world, you see that, for example, Australia nowadays, its stock exchange also engages in blockchain. And because Australia is a very um, condensed market, uh, you see that it's actually scalable already for the stock exchange to be this permissioner. Uh, but that's that's a question that we didn't solve yet. So who is the permissioner? But we see see still room for one intermediary, but just one, not the not the many intermediaries we have nowadays in the system. So first of all, um, if you have shareholders that actually hold their shares with the companies and there's only one intermediary in between you have first of all a very short chain of um, of intermediaries because you just have one meaning that the information flows are easier so nowadays we see many problems with um, issuers that need to communicate with their shareholders and shareholders that actually need to transfer information including their voting decisions to the issuers and blockchain technology makes it uh, possible for shareholders to vote via the blockchain, hold their own ledger, see whether or not their votes are counted in the voting results and have this immediate feedback. Because nowadays, as a shareholder, you vote via your intermediary and you don't know nothing about your votes. Only if you have a high enough stake, you can see with the voting results, oh, my, my vote was not counted. And the shareholder rights directive, the new one, uh, which was uh, 
um, which is going to be implemented next year and was adopted last year, also recognizes that votes are not always correctly transmitted and information as well. And nowadays, also with this shareholder rights directive, companies actually need to identify their shareholders. So this is one of the new requirements, new European requirements. And with blockchain, you can be, because you are almost in direct contact with your uh, shareholders, except for that permission that may be actually the company itself, or maybe a stock exchange, or maybe uh, some central security depository we actually don't know, not really care who that is, as long as the system works efficiently uh, and is, uh, of course, also transparent. And second of all, we see that, but that's also a thing that still is not possible from a legal point of view, is that if you have a blockchain AGM, you can actually create a very lean corporate organ, meaning that you don't have to wait the whole year in order to gather your shareholders because you have this decentralized platform that is in a way very centralized because everybody is on the network and if you have a proposal as a company you can actually issue that to the blockchain you can broadcast that to all your shareholders and they can vote of course this is a little bit more sci-fi because we cannot do it yet so many laws are still requirements for the agm to take place yearly but also to take place physically uh, which is another question we still are asking ourselves. If you have the remote voting on a blockchain, do you still need the physical AGM? Or can shareholders also include their questions on the blockchain? For example, what we see nowadays, if you have virtual meetings, you see that the argument against using these meetings is that companies do not always have to answer, board members do not always have to answer the questions of shareholders. But with blockchain, you cannot avoid answering uh, why? Because the questions are in a blockchain, meaning that everybody can see it and everybody can see your answer. Which again also leads, and now I'm speaking very broadly, to a larger shareholder democracy. Because we nowadays also see that some larger shareholders have more uh, means to engage with corporate board members than small shareholders. But that's one step ahead. Nowadays we just see the voting tool integrated in the blockchain and practice has shown that it actually works. So from the legal perspective, at least at the European level, blockchain will be definitely be possible to use. If you just use it for remote voting as an electronic voting mean, definitely can be used. If you want to take it a step further and you want indeed to have the full AGM only on blockchain, no physical meeting, you have problems, at least in the Netherlands, at least in Belgium, and in many other European countries, because a fully virtual AGM is not allowed. In the US, in some states, it is actually allowed. So there, maybe there are more possibilities. Despite its potential, many still remain skeptical about the blockchain and there is no general consensus in the global arena on its regulation. It is difficult to give an overview of laws throughout the world as they are heavily fragmented. In general, the EU seems to be welcoming to the new technology. In its resolution of May 26, 2016 on virtual currencies, the European Parliament has stressed the fact that distributed ledger technologies have the potential to contribute positively to citizens' welfare and economic development. Although not binding, this does represent recognition of the technology. However, with the General Data Protection Regulation and the right to be forgotten, 
Privacy issues may arise due to the immutability and distribution of the information stored on the blockchain. With an increased use of the technology, the traditional conception of law may be challenged and centralized authorities may lose control of the activities of individuals. This will create a need to regulate society through novel means. Aaron Wright and Prilar de Filippi argue in their book on blockchain and the law that the blockchain will create a new set of rules known as Lex Cryptographica, a phenomenon comparable to the previous emergence of Lex Mercatoria and Lex Informatica. So we saw with the birth of the internet and understanding that really for the first time we could use rules that are transmitted over information systems or Lex Informatica to, to govern and to manage human behavior. So you can kind of think about this phenomenon in a whole bunch of different contexts. So for example, if we want to engage or get moved around via a taxi, we used to just walk out on the street, hail a taxi, that taxi would drive us, you pay the taxi driver, that taxi would drive us to where we had them to go. Uh, now, uh, it's all mediated through a company like Uber or Lyft or uh, you know some other uh, competitor to those two companies. And they really define the whole rules of engagement. They define how you hail the cab. They define how you pay people. They define who's permitted to participate in the network. They define a rating system. Those are all rules that kind of now govern our activity and shape our lives in some sort of way. And what we argue in the book is that blockchains uh, create a different set of of laws or rules that we call Lex uh, Cryptographica. And those are not rules that are defined by a centralized service like Uber or another online platform. Instead, they're defined and maintained by this entire network and they're potentially autonomous. Uh, so that's interesting and novel and new, and it also explains some of the challenge about disintermediation and autonomy. But as with anything, there are problems. We cannot overestimate the benefits of the blockchain, and we should keep in mind that the technology is lacking in a few aspects, and may have some considerably undesirable consequences. There's a number of issues that, uh, that blockchain technology has raised. I would say today, the two largest issues, one is, uh, you know, how do you uh, keep track of all the folks that are, uh, that are engaging in transactions on a blockchain, such that we can root out things like tax evasion and fraud and, uh, and you know, uh, concerns related to terrorist financing. So uh, how do you put in anti-money laundering and know your customer requirements on a blockchain? I think that's a, a big challenge and one that, uh, that many folks are, are grappling with. Uh, the second one is, is kind of related to the fact that we can transfer assets at such a rapid speed. We've seen folks uh, engage in the sale of tokens uh, over the past year. Uh, I think that there's been in total about um, $18 billion in capital that's been raised through the sale of tokens. Um, and the reason that we're seeing folks do that is because it's very, very easy to uh, to keep track of who owns these tokens and to engage in effectively like a global crowd sale event uh, using a blockchain. So while it used to take folks months and a lot of legal work and lots of help from accountants and and potentially investment banks or other folks to raise capital. Uh, now it takes a programmer about a weekend uh, to put together a project, uh, you know, announce the sale of a token on social media and raise you know, tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars in capital. Uh, so that's pretty, you know, exciting if you if you care about capital formation, uh, but the ease uh, with which people are doing it creates concerns for those that are trying to make sure that capital uh, formation uh, and fundraising activities it doesn't hurt everyday consumers and purchasers.
and doesn't lead to wanton or unreasonable speculation. I think those are the two main challenges. And I think in the in the, the longer term, we're going to see challenges um, in the context of some of that, uh, those problems related to tamper resistance. So people publishing material onto a blockchain uh, that folks would be deemed, folks would deem to be socially unbeneficial um, and concerns about being able to take that information down. Um, you know, so you have this tamper resistant uh, data structure. It's not immutable. Immutable means that you can't change it. Uh, really, uh, the way blockchains work is it makes it very, very difficult to change any record or information that's stored in a blockchain once it's stored. Uh, so to give you an example, um, you know, to change any record in the Bitcoin blockchain or the Ethereum blockchain, it would cost uh, lots and lots of money, you know, billions of dollars at this point in time to effectuate such a change because you basically have to take over the entire network. You have to uh, run more uh, nodes, you have to add information faster to the network in order to reverse or fork or create a change in the data structure. Um, and that is uh, potentially useful uh, or potentially harmful depending on, on your perspective and depending on the use case. So if I can store, for example, a reference to uh, information on a blockchain, um, and other folks can access that information by uh, going to that reference, well, then I have created a censor-resistant data structure, right? Uh, and we've seen this emerge in countries like China, where the government uh, has tried to censor certain activity, and folks are turning to the Ethereum blockchain to record that information so that it can be persistently available to anybody who wants to use it. Um, so that uh, that could be socially beneficial to the extent that you believe in you know free speech or or First Amendment rights and, and feel like that should be uh, a basic right that everybody across the globe has. At the same time, you know, someone could publish state secrets on a blockchain and it would be hard for, for a government to take that information down once it's recorded. Or somebody could record references to copyrighted uh, material on a blockchain uh, and folks won't be able to, uh, folks that own that copyrightable work uh, won't be able to take down that reference and that could encourage, you know, file sharing or, or mass copyright infringement. Um, so it's kind of a, a mixed bag when it comes to the tamper resistance. Um, and again, if you're, you're storing government records on a blockchain, that could be useful, right? Um, if I have a persistent record of who owns what real estate in a particular country, well, that means that there's a regime change or you know some sort of catastrophic event, uh, we'll still have a clear record of those ownership rights uh, after that regime change or after um, that activity occurs. So I think all technology can be used for good and bad purposes. Uh, they can be used for socially beneficial things or, or they can be used for activity that is not socially beneficial. So think about a car or an automobile. You can use an automobile to improve transportation across, across the globe. You can also use an automobile, uh, as a war machine by, you know, putting missiles and guns or other things on it. Uh, and using it to, you know, uh, hurt other people. So I think uh, blockchain technology is just is just is that it's just a technology. Uh, it can be used to enhance society, uh, but if it, you have the possibility to disintermediate folks that are preventing bad activity and the possibility to write code that's autonomous and hard to stop, uh, you can actually create systems that could hurt society. In light of what has been discussed, it can be concluded that the blockchain is an interesting technology that can have many beneficial uses. 
The blockchain can be introduced into various fields and allow for greater efficiency by transforming outdated traditional mechanisms. One of these uses could be to improve democratic participation and voting. It has the potential to revolutionize many aspects of our lives, similar to how the internet has, by forming large networks and connecting people across state borders. However, before being carried away with the hype and moving too quickly in the implementation of the technology, we should keep in mind that it is still in the early stages of its development and its limitations still need to be addressed. This episode of Nomas Phone was produced by me, Maria Belenkova. I'd like to thank Professor Aaron Wright and Dr. Anna Lafare for their collaboration. I would also like to thank the Global Law Program at Tilburg Law School for supporting Nomos Phone. You can find all our episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page and our website at www.nomosphone.com. Thank you for joining us, and until next time.